Thanks, Margaret, very much indeed. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Simon Harris, one of the ministers here, if you've got no idea who I am. And uh, add my welcome to everybody this morning. We're coming to the end of our series that takes us right the way through the Bible. Next week will be the last in our series called The Story. No, no, no thoughts about that. Fine. Let's uh, move quickly on to something else then. The good news is then in two weeks' time, we'll be starting something completely new and different. So we're heading towards the end of the Bible and uh, have your Bibles open at 1 Peter would be absolutely fantastic. That's page 1217. Uh, as you can see, if you have your Bible on your smartphone, then you can use that as well. If you have a smartphone and you don't have your Bible on it, then you're not worthy of the smartphone. So please hand it in at the end of the service and uh, we'll put it to some much more uh, godly use than you seem to have managed by yourselves. Um, I'm going to pray. We need God's help as we come to his word, and then we'll get underway together. Father, would you just help us? Because your word is alive. Your word is dangerous, yet safe, compelling, yet challenging, comforting, yet it drags us into greater purpose in our lives. So, Lord, would your word, that's sharper even than a double-edged sword, do its work in our lives this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So after our time in Acts, and uh, you may remember that Peter, uh, sorry, Paul rather, reached his sweet spot while he was in Ephesus, and uh, his most successful strategy was in the end not to plant churches himself, but to develop cascading discipleship relationships. He would disciple somebody who would go out and disciple another who would disciple another, and virally, the gospel began to spread all over the province of Asia. It was a strategy that he'd repeat again uh, while he was in prison in Rome, and the gospel would spread, as the Bible says, all over the world. By the time we pick up Peter's writing, another great figure in the New Testament, so 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and also 1, 2, and 3 John, although later comes from this general period of time, that is taking the Christian church into, firstly, a state of much greater opposition than they had known up until that point. So persecution was increasing. In fact, Peter is writing either just before or just after the persecution that Nero started got well underway. And that was a persecution that would go on almost for 200 years that the church would uh, struggle through. The second thing that was going on at the time of Peter writing was not just that the opposition was increasing, but there was a growing sense among the people, he hasn't come back yet. And you can understand that. It's one thing for Jesus to say he's coming back and to delay it for a year or two, maybe even a decade or more, but suddenly they were looking into the future and they were seeing that the world around them was more hostile than they'd ever known it to all that they were sharing about Jesus. That was the first thing. And the second thing, Jesus didn't seem any more likely now to be coming back than he was a few weeks after he'd first left them. And so they were beginning to face the reality of what I'm calling this morning the long haul. We all face the reality of the long haul. How much longer do we have to live in this war-torn, disease-ridden, poverty-polluted world? How much longer? Come, Lord Jesus, come. 
How much longer when you listen to someone tell of the abuse that they've suffered? How much longer when you stand at the graveside with someone weeping for those they've loved for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years or more? How much longer when today our brothers and sisters in Christ are tortured around the world? How much longer when families break up and when kids are orphaned and when someone gets that other bad diagnosis? How much longer? So we know something of the feeling of the long haul. Imagine for a moment being a Christian in Peter's day at the beginning of Nero's persecution. When those that you prayed with just last week were dragged off and set alight as human torches. When those that sit in your pew were stitched up inside animal skins and thrown to the dogs to be eaten alive. When the brother or sister that led you to Christ had their eyes gouged out simply for doing just that for you. These people knew what it was to have their backs against the wall. They they knew what it was to be looking into the future with a certain sense of dread as to this rising tide of persecution and opposition. How much longer can we stay like this? Lord, how can we survive in this world that's becoming so hostile to you and your gospel? So Peter writes to strengthen them and to encourage them. And in his words, and we'll scan most of 1 Peter this morning, in his words they're there to strengthen and encourage us as we face the reality of the long haul. In fact, I'm going to use the word exhortation, Peter's exhortation. Encouragement seems a a bit weak, and I I think you'll perhaps understand that in a minute when we get underway. This wasn't Peter writing some kind of nice little gentle ideas for us. But in the light of all that was going on, Peter was declaring some things that were true that the people of the day needed to take hold of. So, first encouragement, first exhortation, right there at the beginning, 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Be secure. Be secure in your salvation. Be secure. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. To God's selected. To God's chosen. Not on a whim or a fancy. God didn't go, oh, go on and I'll have you as well. The Bible says before the foundation of the world, God loved us and chose us. You belong to God, and therefore you are, what does it say? You are strangers in the world. You do not belong to this world anymore. And this is the foundation on which Peter will build everything else through his letter. The foundation on which you and I can be utterly secure. Whatever happens, God has chosen you. You no longer belong to this downtrodden, sin-ridden, guilt-filled, self-obsessed world. Hallelujah. It's not my home. My citizenship, my passport, the place where I really belong, the place where I'm heading when I say I'm going home, is another place. Your citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter is so filled with this truth that he bursts into praise, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the first thing. Secondly, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. 
Notice what Peter is writing in the face of opposition and persecution. Peter is saying two things. The first thing is that even now you have a living hope. Eugene Peterson translates it, a life worth living even now. That's what Jesus gives us. Eternal life is to know him now. A life worth living now and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, and to an inheritance that will last forever. Peter wants these early believers around the world at that time, and God wants us to know the same thing, that we can be safe and secure in his promise. There are things that are utterly certain. Come what may, I will be with him in heaven. Thank you. And you too. Come what may. They may do what they like, but in the end, the destination is absolutely certain. And Peter writes to these believers saying, you've got to hang on, because you can be absolutely certain that the Jesus who went and promised to come back, one day would come back. But even if he doesn't, and Peter will explain why he's, uh, even if he doesn't at the moment, and Peter's explaining why there's been a delay, all in God's heart. It wasn't a delay to God, it just appears to be a delay to us. Whilst he's dragging out, as it appears to us, the time between his first coming and his second coming, you can be absolutely certain that your life is safe in God's hands. Verse 5, I hope you read it with me. Let these words fill your gaze, who through faith are shielded by God's dynamite, is the word, by God's power, until the coming of the salvation that is ready. It's all ready in heaven. God's not rushing around trying to fix it together. It's all ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. God wants us to face the short today in the light of the long tomorrow. Hallelujah. And at the end of the letter, he gets uh, excited about it all over again. Just flip over to chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, before God. Humble yourselves, therefore, verse 6, under God's mighty hand. The hand that's safe and secure, the hand that holds you, come what may, the hand that'll never let you go, that he may lift you up in due time. So, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the grace, and sorry, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. God wants you to know that your life is safe in his hands. And if today you have no idea what that means, then, then this is enough just for today to know that the God of heaven invites you into a relationship with him that is so secure, you can be absolutely certain, come what may, that your life is safe in his hands. 
a grip on you that will never let go. The question, though, you're left asking, or at least I'm left asking, that's all fantastic. I'm not of this world anymore. That's a great thing for me to know and understand. So why do I have to stay? If I don't belong here anymore, why do I have to stick around? If this is not the place where my passport is stamped anymore, then why do I remain in this foreign land? In fact, Jesus himself addresses that very question at the end of his ministry when he he begins to pray for the disciples that he's leaving behind. Jesus, of all people, knew how hostile the world would become to those that owned his name. Not surprisingly, they put him on a cross. Odd to think they'll be any more gracious to his followers. And so Jesus prays in John chapter 17, and if you're clever enough to have fingers in several parts of the Bible, just flick there for a moment. John 17, verse 14. Uh, and Jesus is, is, is praying, his heart's going out to these disciples. He's about to leave the world, but they are not. And in that regard, he begins to speak right into our situation. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not, oh dear, that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. The only logical conclusion that Jesus would pray that we would stay in this world that is now no longer our home, is that this world needs us. Jesus, in fact, made exactly that point in the next verse or so, verse 18. Jesus uses himself and his own mission as the very reason that we're called to remain in the world. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. So... For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. The reason that we are still here is that we have a life to live and a mission to accomplish and a purpose to fulfill and a goal to win. We're here because this world needs us and Jesus sends us. Which is why Peter in this letter goes on to say the kind of things that you might not expect to work Christians around the world that were suffering in the face of opposition and persecution. Peter surely writes to them to remind them that they are secure and safe and that their citizenship in heaven is certain and that will never be taken away from them. But you expect him to go on and say, well, just hang on in there. Keep your head down. Keep out of harm's way. Don't cause any trouble. Just wait because Jesus is coming. But he says something quite different. He wants them to be secure, but he also, secondly, exhorts them to be single-minded in their obedience. Look with me at how this is woven just in the opening verses, if you've got them there again. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. But particularly at verse 2. We're God's elect, verse 1, strangers in the world, verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for, an action word, an intentional word, a purpose word, for what? For obedience to Jesus. 
What does it mean to be obedient to Jesus? Remember where this is coming at the end of the New Testament. What's been the thrust of the story through the New Testament? You see, so often we reduce obedience to Jesus uh, as going to church and carrying a big Bible and wearing the right clothes and not saying the wrong words. But for these guys who were living a life and death ministry, obedience to Jesus was all about doing what Jesus had asked them to do. And Jesus had asked them to go into the world and make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey everything. Teach them to become disciples that go on to make other disciples who baptize them and make other disciples who baptize them and so on and so forth. For that's what being obedient to Jesus was all about. That's what Peter had lived and died, eaten and slept and breathed almost every day since that first Pentecost sermon. As a young man, Peter captivated by Jesus as he was a fisherman, and Jesus spoke prophetically into his life and said, Peter, you, you've been all about fishing for fish, and I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Peter, who stood up on that first Pentecost day and preached the first evangelistic message, as we might call it, and people were cut to the heart. Peter, who'd learned that the gospel needed to go beyond the Jews to those that, that hadn't been brought up in a Jewish tradition. Peter, who'd stood in front of authorities and rulers and said, well, you can say what you like, but I cannot help myself but speak of the name of Jesus. Peter, who now at the end of his life, as his body was failing and opposition was rising around the world, Peter, who introduced himself thus, 1 Peter 1, I am Peter, the sent one from God. I am still Peter on the mission that God has given me, the sent one into God's world. Obeying Jesus for these guys was all around making disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples. And in this hostile environment, the disciple who'd once hidden behind locked doors for fear of the Jews writes to these early believers and say, we must not live like that. We must not be like we were just after the resurrection, scared stiff and huddled together. We must be a different kind of people. Because our salvation is secure, we must with passion and commitment and strength and courage Remember why we are here, to be obedient to Jesus. You can imagine them cutting out the first few verses of his letter and dumping the rest. Because from verse 12, well verse 13 really, onwards, instead of Peter writing about keeping your heads down and living a quiet life, Peter says, therefore, in the light of all of this, in the light of the fact that your salvation is secure, whatever you do in this world now, do not hide away, but prepare your minds for action. Let's get on the offensive and not the defensive. We are still a sent people to be holy, to be different, to stand out, to be impactful, and so on and so forth. And so as we get to the end of the Bible we have exactly the same as we had right at the beginning and we could have traced it all the way through. Remember right at the beginning when we looked at Abraham and Joseph and we talked about how Abraham established clearly in our minds the covenant that God makes with us. We are safe and secure and it's all because of what Jesus has done. Remember the animals ripped open and walking down the river of blood? 
Yeah, we didn't literally do it, if you weren't here, we just talked about it. But that was a sign that, that God has done something in us that is absolutely certain that can never be taken away. And then we're introduced to Joseph, uh, who, who knew who God was and put his faith in him, so he chose to be a kingdom worker. And in the end, God used him mightily to extend his rule and reign and to reach many people that would have starved to death because Joseph was faithful. Covenant and kingdom. It's right there in the beginning of Genesis 1. If you go back to those earlier sermons, you can hear all about it there. And now right at the end of the Bible, exactly the same thing. Lots of comfort and support. You are secure. You're safe. What God has done in you will never, ever, ever be taken away from you. Lots of support, but alongside that, something that we're less comfortable with, a lot of challenge. The opposition might be rising, Peter writes, but we're here for a purpose. We've still got a job to do, and it's time for God's church to arise and make a difference in the world. And I love what he goes on to say in chapter 2. And you'll see why I love it in just a minute. Uh, In chapter 2, he tells us what it might mean to be this holy and different community. So verse 13 onwards is about being holy. There's chapter 1 about being different, about being set apart. And then he begins to describe that in a bit more detail. Let's go to verse 5, or verse 4 perhaps, of 1 chapter of one Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. What word is that in the Greek? Oikos. Fantastic. A spiritual community. Ha-ha! Wide awake, everybody. God knows what he's doing. A spiritual community, a spiritual house, to be what? To be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So the call is to be built into a living community, a household, a social network of relationships, a missional community, if you like, the functions that functions like a, like a temple and a priesthood. Both images are there. Now, let's be clear, the temple and the priesthood, in the way we knew it in the Old Testament, was totally done away with through Jesus Christ, the one and only high priest. But in this regard, listen to what Peter is saying. He's saying these missional communities, these oikoses, these spiritual households are like a temple. What happened at the temple? Why did you go to the temple? Who would you find at the temple? Who lived there? God lived at the temple. So you are to be a missional, a spiritual household, a spiritual community where people can go and find God there. And you are to act like priests. The priests would help you at the temple, offer the sacrifices, and put yourselves right with God through our message, our message of reconciliation. Lots of emphasis here on the message. On our message of reconciliation, these missional communities, these spiritual houses that are full of God's presence, where people can come and find God, are the places that people are helped to find forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And that's the calling that Peter offers to this church. When they felt like their backs were against the wall, when they felt like just hanging on for, 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 you know, clinging on for their last breath, Peter says, no, it's time to arise and to be a spiritual house wherever we are, that people can come and find God and discover forgiveness through Jesus in that place. That's why we're here. And uh, as, as I promised, Peter would write uh, some years later in 2 Peter, about why Jesus hasn't come back yet. It's because he's longing. 
He's longing that what? No one should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. And that's why we're here. And so Paul gets, uh, sorry, Peter rather gets very excited about this and he sums it all up in verse 9 of uh, 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen people. That's what you are. That's covenant. That's what God has given you. Did you do anything special to be chosen? No. Absolutely not. In fact, what you did made you likely to be not chosen. That's why it's grace. You are a chosen people. That's covenant, that's grace, that's who you are. And then, what you do, kingdom, you're a royal priesthood. You invite others to discover forgiveness through Jesus. You act like the priest that makes it possible for people to find the the forgiveness of their sins and a new relationship with God. You are a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That's covenant, that's what God gives you, that's who you are. And this is therefore what you are supposed to do, to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you've not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And it will be the authenticity of these communities, these oikoses, these social networks, these spiritual houses that will make them stand out. And so Peter goes on in verse uh, 11, dear friends, I urge you therefore as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Live such good lives among the pagans. The best strategies that I have adopted, and maybe you too, is to live away from the pagans. Maybe I have to live among the pagans when I'm at work, but that's why all the more when I'm not at work, I want to build this kind of community around me that isn't anywhere near the odd pagan or two. Because that's awkward. It's better to be just with those like me. And so I go to a Christian church. And if I'm part of some hobby group, I make sure it's a Christian one. And I have a Christian doctor and a Christian dentist and a Christian estate agent. No, there aren't any. Uh, And a Christian whatever. Uh, And I surround myself in this glorious cocoon of brother this and sister that. And yet, Peter says, in this hostile environment, the deal is to live among the pagans. And suddenly my own strategy for my own security is challenged to the core. And the second part is, are you living among the pagans in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits? When was the last time in the office someone looked at you and said, because of the way that you live, I can't help but worship God? No, they don't do that with me either. And so the challenge is about taking this life, this, this, this holiness that makes us distinct and separate and set apart and living it out amongst the people that are around us. And Peter goes on to spell out what living it out is like uh, in verses uh, 13 following through chapter 3. In all kinds of different sets of relationships, Peter essentially says... You need to live different from everybody else. And two words he uses, two concepts, two ideas, repeat again and again and again, service and submission. Service 
and submission. We live in a world where everybody seeks to live by power and control. And Jesus says, in his word, through Peter, you will be marked out as different. You will live the kind of life that causes others to worship God if you live around service and submission. And so he talks about masters and slaves. He talks about kings and lords and governors and how we respond to them, even if they do not worship God themselves. He talks about husbands and wives in the home. Lives marked by service and submission. And in case you've lost the plot as to why you need to do that, he says again in verse 15 of chapter 3, Be in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always, therefore, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. If you start living by service and submission, it is so counter the culture, people will ask you why you're so weird. And then you can give this answer. You can give this answer. Be ready, giving the reason for the hope that is within you. But do this with gentleness and respect. The obedience will involve suffering, takes us into chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Uh, Essentially, Peter's saying, look, we've got to get real. Uh, If Jesus got a right whacking, we're going to get one too. Uh, and, And that was the challenge that he offered these believers struggling in a rising tide of hostility. He said, let's just be real about what will happen. You can live this totally different life. You can form these spiritual houses and people will come to know Jesus. You can do all that. You can have the excitement of making a difference for his kingdom, but you will suffer for that. You will see the triumph, but there will be trouble. We've heard that before, haven't we? You will know the power of God extending his kingdom, but you will know the pain. Because the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. Come follow me, and by the way, take up your cross as you follow me. And that was the challenge. But Peter said, don't worry too much about that, because there's a byproduct that's really brilliant. Verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2, he says there's this brilliant byproduct of people that are willing to, uh, uh, to suffer for Jesus. As a result, the one who suffers does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates these verses. It kind of gets to the the heart of it. Verse 1, this is Eugene Peterson. Since Jesus went through everything you're going through and more, so don't have any false ideas about sitting back with comfort and security. Since Jesus went through everything you're going through and more, learn to think like him. Think of your sufferings as a weaning from that old sinful habit of always expecting to get your own way. Verse 2, then you'll be able to live out your days free to pursue what God wants instead of being tyrannized by what you want. That's it. That's That's me. I live tyrannized by what I want. It's all about me and my comfort and my health and my agenda and my pleasure. It's me, me, me. And Peter says, do you know, when you get to suffer a bit for Jesus, something absolutely fantastic happens in your life. You get gloriously freed up from the me syndrome. And that you find your ability to live in a new way for God, to pursue what God wants. It's a paradox, isn't it? A contradiction. That when the church has suffered... 
when we've been most under pressure, when we've been most persecuted, we have indeed been freed from the tyranny of self and become profoundly more effective than we have when we've been safe and comfortable. A lot of my discussion last week with Otty was all around the future of the church, especially in the West, because that's a new dynamic for him. Sorry for those of you who weren't here last week. Uh, Otty Bernaccio is the president of the Baptist Union in Romania, and uh, he's the senior pastor of uh, Providence Baptist Church in Bucharest that we as a church partner with. And he would say, 15 years ago, or 20 years ago, whenever, uh, was it 1980, was it, communist, communism fell, Ceausescu fell in Romania, up until that uh, period of time, the church was armed against, in inverted commas, the enemy. They were in mission mode. It was a battle that was on for their nation and for the lives of men and women. 20 years ago, they were marginalized and persecuted, and the church was strong and focused and missional. Now that pressure... That suffering is gone. The church is comfortable and content and absorbed in its own comfort. Something we can barely imagine. And so they're facing what we're facing and, and, and come to it so much quicker perhaps than we did. The people inside the church and outside the church in Romania, and we might say that to you, just want the same thing. They want to be rich and successful because that's how life has been defined for them. As it becomes for us more difficult to name, honour, promote, discuss, preach, declare Jesus, could it be that as it gets tougher, that very toughness becomes a gift to us that frees us from the tyranny of our self-absorption? God's word would teach us that that's what happens. And then finally, the long haul, just one minute. Peter writes a second letter to Peter. And uh, his exhortation, really, in this second letter is to be sound in doctrine. Just verse 1 of chapter 2 of 2 Peter 2. But there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They'll secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. It's not the big heresies that I'm worried about, although, interestingly, last week, some of us leaders uh, uh, locally here have been talking about a a sect in in Suffolk that's trying to gain ground. Uh, And maybe we should be on our guard. But we've been, as these guys were, in danger of being sold out to more subtle heresies. The biggest heresy in the New Testament was the heresy of the Judaizers. It was subtle. It said, yes, you can have Christ, and, and he is our Messiah, but, but Jesus was a Jew, so we need to do all the things that the Jews always used to do. We need to maintain all of those traditions as well. Sounds very good and very plausible and very laudable, but it ground the work of the kingdom to a halt because it became about works and not about grace. It was subtle. And so many subtle things seep into our understanding and our our. Arthur, you become a Christian and, and because you're a Christian, well, you should serve the church a lot. And, and what we do in church is clearly more important than what we do out there. So, so spend more of your time in here and less of your time out there. And we, we might not say it quite like that, but the way that we live kind of creates this, this drawing in. That there's this subtle understanding that somehow the churchy stuff is more important and in the end matters more than living for God out in the world. The understanding that 
if we know the Bible inside out, back to front and upside down, it makes me more like Jesus. And it doesn't. Now, now you can't become like Jesus without knowing the Bible inside out and upside down. But this doesn't make you like Jesus. And there are people in universities around the world that know this book inside out, but they don't know Jesus at all. And we can fall for that. If only I learn a bit more about this book, then I'll be a better Christian. And in the end, it's not true. And so there are these subtle heresies that rob us from the truth. And Peter writes and says, come on, guys. The day is urgent. Urgent. We must be obedient to Jesus and give ourselves to everything that makes us more like him and enables us to carry on his purpose in the world today. We must be on our guard. Let's pray.